I want you to feel better. I want you to feel rested and alive again. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. That's a good description of how we can figure out our sleep is in need of help. Let's shift gears and talk about treatment. Obviously, the treatment depends on what the cause is, but if the person has other medical conditions too, for example, cardiovascular disease, does that treatment then change? Yeah, so definitely it will play a factor in into what the actual treatment would be. You would definitely have the same option, but I just might push one option more than the other. When it comes to treatment, it is I do tend to really try and get good feedback from the patient as well. Just to overview what the treatments are for sleep apnea, there are a couple of things that you can just do on your own. And that's what I always start with is one is working on the weights. We know mm -hmm. weight is directly linked to sleep apnea. So getting your weight down best you can, and it's not easy, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's a lifestyle change. You want to change your lifestyle to work on ways to control your weight. And then position. We know that sleeping on your back is notoriously worse for sleep apnea. So we recommend actually sleeping off your back for sleep apnea purposes alone. And if you find that you are on your back more than doing things to either try and get your head, your bed elevated, if you have an adjustable bed or like a wedge pillow, or can find some way to get it elevated one way or another, or finding ways to just stay off your back. Sometimes they have these devices that you can use that basically are like our bump on the back that it's a belt that you wear so that if you roll over onto your back then you naturally will roll back over which is very uncomfortable yeah you just make yourself okay. uncomfortable. weights and positional therapy those are the two most important things that are really recommended for that's for everybody and things you can stop right away and i tell you just that's things to just focus on right away then in terms of actual treatments you're looking at things like oral appliances that's one for usually the mild sleep apnea and it's a device that you wear made by a dentist that basically just advances your jaw forward and helps you keep that way open while you're sleeping. Yeah, essentially. Okay. <laughs> and it's just a, it's just a mouthpiece. Like a mouthpiece. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. So that's one option more for the milder cases. And then you get into CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure. This is probably the best studied and the best treatment option we have for sleep apnea. But basically, that's a mask that you wear at night while you're sleeping that blows air in and helps keep that airway open. And there's a lot of stigma around it. A lot of people 
don't think they'll ever be able to tolerate it, but it really has changed quite a bit over time. The technology is really advanced. It's not always these big, bulky masks that are covering your face. There's some that just go over the nose, just sit underneath the nose. They're quite a bit more tolerable than they used to be. And really the key is just having very close follow-up with a sleep physician or like a whoever's the supplier so that if you're having issues, you can change masks, change pressures. But usually CPAP is the best treatment, I would say. And then the next step after that is more surgical approaches where you would go in to see one of the surgeons, most likely a ear, nose, throat surgeon, and they take a look at your airway and see what is going on. Do you have any type of anatomy issue on your tonsils too large, you have a deviated septum or nasal polyps that are causing some type of obstruction or something that can be cleared out. It's going to help your airway. And then even now we have some amazing new technology like these nerve stimulators, like a hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is basically like an implant that I essentially describe as a pacemaker for your tongue. It's an implant that goes in your chest, usually your right chest, and it you have a remote control, you click it on at night before you go to sleep. And then hopefully after you go to sleep, it kicks on and it sends the voltage, that nerve in your neck, it causes your tongue to stick out a little bit and helps keep that airway open. I, it's crazy. I know that this, is, <laughs> but it actually does work. It's not, I, it's not where you go right away. You always, mm. always would try CPAP first and have to fail CPAP and they're very, strict criteria for who would be eligible. Your weight can't be above a certain amount. Your severity of receipt apnea can't be above a certain amount. So it has to kind of fall in the right parameters. But there are more options now for treatment of sleep apnea than, than ever before. So that sounds that way. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So if somebody, they have sleep apnea, they have this major risk factor for a doubling of their cardiovascular risk for heart attacks and things. If they get on CPAP and it's working and they're using it, does that take them back down to a regular risk? Yeah. So that's one of the big things is that it does bring you down to a lower risk if you are able to get that treatment of CPAP. Yeah. So that's one of the main reasons why we tend to recommend it. And it really leads to a lot of improvement. A lot of times, I'm getting people referred for things like high blood pressure that is resistant to multiple medications around like five blood pressure medications, and they still can't get that blood pressure under control. You really want to get their sleep checked out. A lot of times it could be that sleep apnea that's causing that blood pressure to go up. And sometimes even people with very high blood levels, like polycythemia, they have too much blood. That's their body compensating for them not oxygenating properly. If they're spending their whole time while they're sleeping, oxygen deprived, your body reacts. It's like, we need more oxygen. Let's make more mm-hmm. blood. So I've had patients come in really, really high hemoglobin levels. They got on a CPAP and then they came on back to normal. So usually getting effective treatment of sleep apnea should tend to bring you back to the normal risk levels. But that's the key thing is that you need effective treatment. And that's where a lot of the studies have struggled to prove it as well is because it's very hard to get consistent treatment. Mm. That's the problem is that a lot of these studies will say effective treatment is four hours of sleep on CPAP. And, you know, 
<laughs> you you really want more than that. You really do want more than that. So you want it to be what, the full night. You want it to be the full night, but it, it is very hard to study because it's hard to make everybody that you're studying use it perfectly and get it treated perfectly. It's going to vary. There are going to be some people who won't at all, some people who can for a little bit, and then some people who use it perfectly. And it's hard to differentiate between those groups. Because they're all lumped together. Exactly. And, and hopefully people are going back to their doctors or suppliers and going, no, this doesn't feel right. Switch me to something else. Switch that me fits. to something else. Yeah. Switch my mess. Switch my mess. Switch my mess. Ah, this one's nice. And that's the main thing is that as long as you have good support, usually you should be able to get to some place. And see, I definitely say CPAP isn't for everybody, but at least give it a shot. So there are a lot of things you can change, just not the mask, but the pressures, the temperature humidity. There's so many settings that can be adjusted for comfort. So many things that can be adjusted for comfort that you might tolerate it better than you think. And if you don't, it's not the end of the world. We can always just try and get it managed the best we can. That's a good recap or a good coverage of sleep apnea. What about someone that is just not sleeping for insomnia or their work schedule? They have two, three jobs. How do you approach helping them? Right. So yeah, that is a different, different thing to look into, but really that's where we come back in. First, we make sure that the sleep hygiene is as good as possible. So you want your bed to be that safe space, like a sanctuary that's just for sleep. You really want it just for sleep and sex, nothing else. That's it. You don't want to be sitting there and watching TV. You don't want to be doing any eating, anything other than sleep. And your sleep environment should be as good as possible. If you want it to be cool, you want it to be dark, try and eliminate as much excess sound as you can. You don't want a TV on or anything like that. And if there's sound outside or light coming in from outside, do as much as you can to try and protect that. If you need blackout curtains or dark curtains, that's something as well, too. And then really just focusing on all those sleep habits. Then other things like really trying to eliminate caffeine. A lot of people have caffeine way too late into the day. You really want to cut it out as early as you can. Definitely nothing close to bedtime and as early in the afternoon or even morning or none at all. You can get it in early in the day if you need it and then try and cut it off. You could say no later than three in the afternoon in general, but the earlier, the better always, because that can definitely keep you up in the middle of the night. And then usually we'll do things like sleep diaries where we actually have you track along and see. It's a good habit just in general so that you can see how am I sleeping, what's changing. And then there are a lot of over-the-counter medications that people are using for sleep as well too. So I have people report if they've taken something, what they've taken, when they've taken it. And then even some people are on prescription medications as well too. So just to track along and see medication is not the answer for insomnia or, or poor sleep. Really, it is first your hygiene, your lifestyle, and then there are different tricks that you do to help with your sleep. So the best treatment for insomnia is actually cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's usually done by a sleep psychologist or by a sleep doctor. Here, we don't have a sleep psychologist. I'm basically doing it on my own best fiction. <laughs> but it, that really has pretty close follow-up. Usually I'll follow up with these patients like once a week or once every two weeks, depending on how they're doing until we can get to a good place. And usually I'll try and come to a joint decision with the patient as to what is the best bedtime for you. 
what is the best wake up time for you and what to do if you can't get to sleep. Like if you're in bed for over 30 minutes and can't get to sleep and you don't think you're going to be able to get to sleep for quite a while, you don't want to just stay in bed. You want to get up, get out of bed, go do so, go to a different room or a different area, do something relaxing, not stimulating, don't exercise, don't do laundry, don't clean, like either read something or drink some water, try and calm yourself down, then come back to bed and try and sleep again. So really these habits to try and kind of get your sleep as good as possible. And then if nothing else works, then we might start incorporating some medications as well too. But really you try and do all the lifestyle things first. And then the second line would be, would be medications after that. Okay. And so if I'm on medications for this, well, is that going to help reduce my risk of cardiovascular disease? Will medicines get me back to that same risk level? No, I don't believe so. So really, you don't want to take any medication without having a discussion with your provider first, even over the counter. And some of them, almost all of them can lead to some sort of dependence. If you're finding a medication is helping you get to sleep easier, it's just natural that you're eventually going to become dependent on it. And some are definitely worse than others, but in general, that's why we try and avoid them as much as possible is because of that dependence. And then they all do come with some side effects as well to some of the more like stimulating medications that you're taking during the daytime. Those can be actually dangerous on the heart and not things that you want to take unless you absolutely have to. And then like, like what though? Like a lot of times if people have persistent daytime sleepiness, despite all the treatment, then they might get on some type of stimulants like either like Adderall or modafinil or something like that, those can actually increase your heart rate and be more dangerous on the heart in general. But then in terms of the nighttime medications, those tend to lead to some other side effects as well too. Like some of the things like Ambien, those can really get you pretty disoriented, increase your risk of falls and things like that, especially in the elderly population. And then things as crazy as like sleepwalking. I've had some pretty ridiculous stories of patients who have no recollection of anything that they did, but their neighbors have noted them out in their yards doing crazy, crazy things. Like what? So (laughs) the craziest one I had is that this patient's neighbor noted him outside in his yard with a horse mask on working at a dog. <laughs> and the next morning, the neighbor confronted him saying, what were you doing last night? He's like, what do you mean? I was just sleeping. And I was like, well, I saw you outside with a mask on the marching at my dog. <laughs> but no, I've heard of people doing construction around the house, like getting up on a ladder and like hammering oh nails into a wall like eating things, fridges that left open and empty plates. So some strange things, not everybody, but there are some odd side effects from some of these medications. So usually I try to prevent them unless we don't have any other option. Yeah. Is that just with the Zolpidem Ambien or is that with other classes too? Usually that's the main class. Some of the other classes can do that and have some other side effects as well too, but usually the Ambien is... And, Probably that's one of the most commonly prescribed ones and most used, and I don't like it for this reason. Yeah. I try yeah. to bring it as much as possible. I mean, it sounds like you don't like any of them. Do any of them actually help 
with sleep, do you get good sleep with the medicines or they just knock a person out? In general, the one that I tend to recommend more than any other is melatonin. That's the most natural. And most people don't take it properly or take it at the right doses. So you really do want to be under the right guidance of a sleep provider. Usually you do want to take it quite a bit earlier than when you go to sleep at least an hour before. And it does depend on what your particular sleep is. It might be earlier, it might be later, but usually at least an hour before and usually three milligrams, you don't need to go much higher than that. People go quite a bit higher, but you really aren't getting too much more benefit at those higher doses. So usually that's the starting one, but a lot of people don't feel like it does anything or some people do get like vivid dreams from it as well too. But usually that's the most natural one. Your body's already making melatonin and it fluctuates throughout the day and in response to light levels and things like that. So this kind of just helps your rhythm, your body's natural clock, your circadian rhythm. So usually that's the best starting one, I'd say. And then you can get into some other over-the-counter ones as well too, things like Venusarm or Doxalamine. A lot of these are things that will cause you to feel groggy the following day as well too. Antihistamine. A lot of these nighttime medications have Benadryl in them. So a lot of times you will have a hangover effect from some of these sleep medications as well too. And then there are a lot of newer ones that are coming out as well too at every I feel like every couple of months I see a new medication for insomnia. So there are a lot of new medications that have been pretty promising. Things like Lunesta is another one that's similar to Ambien, but then you have a couple other medications as well too, like Balsamra. And there are a lot, but all of those, you definitely, definitely want to be under the care of a sleep doc if you're going to be taking medication like that, I'd say. Some primary care docs are comfortable prescribing them, and those are completely fine as well too. But if you have the option, it'd be nice to be some primary care doctors are extremely comfortable. Oh, yes. All of them. Yes. <laughs> and, and maybe it sounds like they shouldn't be. But yes. Because <laughs> I've talked to patients before and they go, I'll ask them why they're on the sleep medicine. And they'll just say, because I told my doctor I have trouble sleeping. So they wrote me the script. That was the end of it. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely try and not jump to sleep medication. I try, That's second line for me. You want to do the hygiene and the habits first, then just make sure that you're doing the best things you can. And mm-hmm. that, and sometimes in combination, sometimes I do them in combination. Definitely I'm not close to that, but you definitely don't want to ignore the sleep hygiene and the sleep habits. I feel like if you ignore that and go straight to medication, that's not correct or appropriate. So it sounds like it's the lesser of evils when you have to when you have to get to medicine it's fine for medicine because the alternative of being awake all night is also bad exactly exactly and And that's what and it's trial and error some patients will react great to one medication and some will feel no difference at all to it so it it sometimes can be very frustrating for patients but you just try and have to try the different medications and just track along it's see what works and it's not it's not that every night is going to be great you you might have like a string of four nights but trying to get as good uh, and as consistent of sleep as possible is really the goal as long as you can get the majority of nights as best sleep as you can and not some people with insomnia setting a goal of seven hours just isn't realistic or isn't feasible you kind of work at baby steps like you're getting like two three hours a night i'm not going to expect you to get to seven in a week. I, mm. I just want to slowly get you up as best we can. 
A lot of times it's just moving your what you're doing. That's where I start. If you're going to bed at eight o'clock and you're not getting to sleep until midnight regularly, I'm going to tell you, don't go to bed at eight o'clock. Go to bed around 11.30 or 11. Allow yourself that opportunity to build up how tired you are and hopefully mm-hmm. that'll help get you to sleep earlier. If you're sleeping in bed for four hours or laying in bed for four hours without getting to sleep, that's really not what we want. We want you to have as good sleep efficiency as possible. When you're the amount of time in bed, the majority of it, you should be asleep. You shouldn't be spending so much time in bed just being awake. And then that changes what your bed is for at that point. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> my bed is where I want to go when I want to really look at my ceiling. Yeah. Really <laughs> see how good the paint still is. <laughs> so when you said moving times around too, that got me thinking. Are chronotropes real? I've heard this going around. Some people are warning some sort of bird. People are larks versus owls versus, I don't know, birds well enough to keep going with this. But <laughs> is that real? And if it is, how? where is it coming from? Yeah, it is definitely real. And basically what, just in general, what a chronotrope means, it's what is your natural tendency of when you want to wake up and when you want to sleep. And it can vary drastically between a lot of people. Our normal schedule of like nine to five work day is based on the majority. Probably 50-ish percent of people fall in that window. But then there's going to be a subset, about 25, who are going to be more preferring sleeping later and waking up later. And then the other quarter would be the opposite, uh, sleeping earlier and waking up earlier. So most commonly, those evening chronotypes or night owls are the ones that have been found to have more issues. It's interesting the connections that there are there. People who are more often to be night owls are more likely to have history of substance use, either with tobacco or alcohol or cannabis. And there's also even links to poor health in these evening chronotypes as well, too. They're at higher risk of actually having or cardiovascular health, especially in women more than men, actually. And then these people are also more likely to have a worse diet. Like I said earlier, people who are not sleeping, it affects their hunger hormones and that causes them to eat more and usually worse things. So it's interesting to actually have a higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of obesity, higher risk of obstructive sleep apnea in these evening chronotypes. And it's, it's the same thing. We don't know whether it's particularly that that's causing it or if it's the byproducts of that. So, Right, because as someone who has worked many a night shift, I can tell you that there's no healthy food around oh, in no. the hospital. There's just, here's some <laughs> chips and cookies if you can find that at least. And then everyone just brings in various junk foods. Oh, yeah. And that's what people are eating. And yep. then they go home and they sleep during the day for four hours. And then they wake up and they're awake for the rest of the time. Yep. Yeah. No, shift work is not easy. Not easy. Very hard to deal with. Yeah. So what do you do with people that work shift works, like medical or fire or police and all that, or factory workers, just so many different kinds. So many different kinds. That It is very, very difficult. So they're all different kinds of shifts. Some people work early morning, nights, overnight. Some people even have rotating shifts, which makes it really, mm. really complicated. And usually, most often, these are going against people's natural rhythm, their natural clock, or their circadian rhythm. So really, you just try and 
get it to be the best sleep that you can get. So just for an example, for somebody who's working like a graveyard shift, if they're working late night or overnight regularly, and it interferes with their ability to have like normal nighttime sleep, you just try and do as much of minimizing the disruption as possible. So you want to keep it as consistent as possible. So if you're consistently working a nighttime shift, then on your day to, on your days off, you want to try and be as close to that as possible. And it is very, very difficult. And I would say probably one of the hardest things to deal with in medicine is really trying to find that right schedule for you. And very important are going to be things like having blackout curtains, especially if you're trying to sleep mm-hmm. during the day. You're going to want to make sure you're trying to get as consolidated, as good sleep in the window that you can get as possible. And it's also very good to, if you are stuck in a shift work job, to see a sleep doctor and see what the recommendations are. There is quite a bit of data that actually shift work does decrease your life expectancy. So <laughs> I know it's not feasible, but I always ask, is there any possibility of you getting out of shift work? <laughs> And I know it's not feasible for a lot of people and it's not an option. And then just do whatever you can to to help trying to get as good of windows of sleep as you can when you're off of work is essentially what you have to do. And a lot of times you have to do, you do have to incorporate some medications as well too. But really similar thing is insomnia, honestly, like having a set bedtime, having a set Mm -hmm. wake time, as good of a schedule and habits as you can around it. And try to minimize light as well, too. Like if you're driving home from work and it's very bright, put on some sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Get home, make sure your house is dark or you have the curtain so that you can get to sleep easier. And it's tough. A lot of people who are working shift work that have kids to deal with that home and they're keeping them awake and things like that. So it's difficult, very difficult to see shift work disorder. Yeah. And speaking of kids, as we were talking about before the show, you are now the proud father of a newborn child. Have you discovered anything useful in that phase for how to get enough sleep? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. I, you're right. Thank you so much. I have a beautiful baby boy, Zane. He was just born about two weeks ago. And me and my wife have been figuring out how to navigate this. And it's funny. I've been joking with all my patients that I've been the one trying to help you with your sleep, but now I'm going to be the sleep-deprived sleep doctor. <laughs> that is tough, yeah, especially with a newborn. We definitely are getting a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> sleep quality has definitely changed, and I don't think I have a treatment or an answer <laughs> for this yet. More to come on that, but I've been reading so much about all the sleep training things, and I'm hopeful we're not there yet. Usually that starts after about like eight weeks or so. But you just do the best that you can. Right now, basically what we've been doing is just trying to sleep with baby sleeping. <laughs> but whether that's day or night, we're in a, a free flowing schedule. <laughs> Some nights he does great. Some nights we've been able to get pretty good sleep. And then other nights, last night, <laughs> awake every two hours. And my wife is a superhero. She's a doctor as well. She's an infectious disease doctor. And she has she knew this was coming up today. So she spared me and didn't wake me up at all overnight. So I was able to get some sleep okay. before they said least. But, and we have her mother here helping and she's been a lifesaver, honestly. There's not really uh, any good solution. <laughs> but if you can get it right lost. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever else. People. <laughs> in law, 
whatever support you can get. That's the secret. I think right now that's the best solution I got. <laughs> that's that may be all there is forevermore. Yeah. Cool. So is there anything else you want to add to the world out there that's listening because they're at risk for heart disease, they have heart disease and they want to know, all right, my sleep may not be perfect. I'm going to take a stab at fixing it. Any parting words for them? Yeah. The main thing I'm always going to say is just work on that sleep hygiene. Really just try and get it the best habits, best routine that you can. That's just for everybody. Work on getting your weight down. That'll help you sleep overall as well to having a good diet, exercising, getting your mood disorders under good control if you're suffering with anxiety and depression. And then if you're still having issues, seek care. Talk to your primary care doctor about it first. See what they think. If they think a referral to a sleep specialist is warranted, then go through with it. And if they recommend any type of testing, get it done. Just to see this really, it's one night that you either have to wear some equipment at home or come into a sleep lab, but then you'll at least have answers whether there's something going on or not. And if there is something going on, then you can work on the steps to treat it and to fix it. It's critical. Sleep is very, very important your whole body, your hearts, not just your heart, but everything. If you're starving your body of oxygen for any amount of time, it affects that. It's going to affect every single organ in your body, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your muscles. So there's no reason to not pay attention to it. It's a huge portion of your life that affects your day. A lot of people think, I'm just sleeping. It's not a big deal, but it really will affect your day. And then people who have severe sleep apnea and who get treatment usually feel quite a bit better. That's what my goal is. I want you to feel better. I want you to feel rested and energetic and alive again. A lot of people don't even realize how tired they are. They just slowly over time, just get used to this being normal. And that when they actually get treatment, they're like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't realize this is amazing now. Not everybody, but I definitely have had a lot of patients who said this is change my life, feel like a new person again. I have some energy and do a lot of things that I wasn't able to do before, and especially with weight as well to a lot of people who I see in my weight clinic. I almost always try and have them get their sleep evaluated as well too. If you're not getting good quality of sleep, it's much, much harder to get that weight off. You want to optimize your sleep to help with the weight as the weight comes down, that helps with your sleep. So it's a cycle. And all of those things all help your heart and your whole body. Definitely something not to disregard or to pay as much attention to it today. But if you need help, seek it. That's fantastic. Yeah, way to reiterate all those key points for over the last little bit that we've been talking that how you're living your lifestyle is foundational. And it all goes together and it's hard to separate. So just do it and feel better and feel fantastic. This has been a really helpful conversation, Dr. Sheikh. Thank you a lot for coming on. And this will help people get perspective on what they need to do with their lives and start doing those things. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. And thank you again. Let's recap a few key points from this segment on sleep. Yes, messed up schedules and not sleeping well will increase our chance of developing heart disease and dying early. But... We can reverse that risk and get it down. Sleep hygiene, CPAP, the timing of light, all that can help restore our sleep. Then that sleep can help restore us. Talk to your doctor about sleep, or if you can access a sleep doctor, that's even better. 
changing our routines is hard. That's where CPR comes in. Set up a free appointment at CPRHealthClinic.com and we can talk about restructuring your day for better time asleep and awake. Remember, the way you live can save your life.